David Hershkovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Who is he? An original fun gallery artist, Navy veteran, toured with The Clash, buddy of Virgil Abloh, collabed with Comme de Garçon, designed the livery of the new BMW M2, and there's much, much more to be said about Lenny McGurr, better known to many as Futura 2000. But one thing that has been consistent throughout his life's ups and downs is his relationship with cannabis. It got him in trouble in the military, but brought him back home into the welcoming arms of the graffiti community. The 20th century behind him, he's ditching the numerology and landing on Futura, a multifaceted, timeless visionary, happy to be back painting. In this wide-ranging conversation, Futura opens up about some of his highest highs and lowest lows, and how he persevered to become the internationally renowned artist he is today. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of Light Culture. Today, my guest is Lenny McGurr, better known to most people as Futura. He used to be known as Futura 2000, but he dropped the 2000 part when we crossed over into the 21st century. Uh, So, Lenny, how has the 21st century been treating you so far? 20 years in, not bad. It's been a good uh, millennium. It's been a good new millennium. I'm happy to be part of it. So when you first named yourself 2000, didn't mm. even have idea what that would be like. That was 50 years. I mean, that's actually 1970. So that's technically 50 years ago. It sounds crazy to say that. Did you even think that, you know, because 2000 was such a big number in our yeah. lives as, you know, growing up. Because you sure. sort of like... Remember that we had that whole Y2K thing when you thought the world was going to destroy. Of course. I mean, you know, but go back to the beginning, obviously. And I've always said that 2001 is the is the film that, you know, I guess influenced me, you know, to arrive at that, that 2000 number. But, you know, coming from the graffiti movement in New York, everyone searching for identities and, you know, it, the number system was based on, you know, street, uh, you know, streets as far as, you know, Stay High 149, Joe 136, uh, Cat CAT 87, like all of the, the sort of names, one, two, Roman numerals, uh, first. But 2000 was really, you know, fantasy-ish. And I also was like, well, I'm never going to, I'll never realize, you know, I'll never see the year 2000 because I think also back in 70 as a 15-year-old, uh, it wasn't like I didn't want to get old, but I don't know. We just we didn't want to. We didn't want to get old. Future two thousand. It had a great name, and you know, I, yeah. And during ninety eight, ninety seven, ninety eight, I was like, wow, it's like it's arriving. <laughs> it's arriving. What and, am I going to do? Yeah, what am I going to do? <laughs> two thousand, I let go because it was sort of like, you know, it just didn't seem relevant. And well, although now I'm, I've been grabbing back at it because, you know, I, I do want to claim it. It's it's not something I'm you know completely against, but. 
And and as my identity goes now, it's you know Futura dos mil, which is for you who don't speak Spanish, two thousand in Spanish. So it's it's kind of still there, but I just felt like Futura, which was stolen from the typeface and from the car, and from the blender and the sewing machine. You know, every place I saw the name Futura, um, I still feel like wow, what a great identity you know I I came up with, and it could be part of you know what made me the artist I am today, I guess. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it's interesting for me looking back as well because I see that a lot of the things that you were into back then that were not like mass by any means. There was just your own passion, interests. Mm -hmm. And today, they're everything, right? It's part of the global culture. It's part of your life in a big way. Mm -hmm. But you had always been futuristic in that respect. Uh, Who knew, you know, when you were into... Sneakers, mm. let's say. Yeah. As I recall, uh, when we went on that trip to France, which is, 1982, which is one of the highlights of my life, <laughs> and and mine, and I, you know, and I got a chance to hang out with you and and a bunch of the other great OGs of that time. Yes. And and rest in peace, Don D. White. Don rest D. in peace, uh, Ramel Z. Ramel Z. Rest in peace, Frosty Freeze. You know, there's a few. Uh, and phase I, two. Phase two, uh, most recently, of course. You know, the loss of Lonnie recently was really, uh, you know, I mean, obviously we're in the the wake of the tragedy of Kobe and, and, and that whole story. But really when Faze passed, I was felt really uh, very sad and I cried. You know, I did cry because um, he was such a great friend. Although, you know, as we've all aged, you know, it's not like we're as socially or rubbing elbows like as, as we once did, but such a great individual and super important to our personal story, you know, and beyond architect, pioneer, you know, FaZe was just a real kind of academic, you know, of our of our culture. And whatever his feelings were about graffiti, which were not positive, I think overall uh, he was widely respected, you know, as, as really one of the founding fathers of the whole thing. It, not just in terms of writing your name on the wall, but like a kind of a a style, there's something very unique about him, and and I, and I was very much inspired by him, and you know tried to find my own direction as we all did, but super motivated by him and his words, and you know it really was so sad to, to hear him pass, and you know it's, it's probably seems like like a month ago, you know it's not yeah. even that long ago, no, so it's very recent, yeah, and yes, he was one of the people on that trip as well, and I. Yeah. Recall uh, the sneaker culture. Let's just talk about that for a minute. Yeah. And you guys, you and 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 the generally the crew who mm. who dressed differently from the rest of the scene in those days, because as you you know, John Lurie, we just looked at a picture of him. Yes. You know that people wore the vintage suits with the thin ties. You know, still very much throwback. Yes. Eras. And then when you guys came on the scene downtown with the whole new look. Mm-hmm. Everything seemed to change, but it certainly pointed to, to the future, like a whole new way of of looking at yourself, the fresh, being fresh, being yes. clean. I always remember how with the sneakers in my day, you'd step on it as oh, soon God. as you got yeah, it, the it's white trouble. ones. It's trouble. But um, now, so, but then on the trip with you guys going, I remember we would stop somewhere and, and you would take off to the Adidas store to looking for this 
for the looks that didn't ha- weren't available in New York or yes. U.S., right? Because they mm-hmm. had their whole different styles there. You'd bring them back. Well, I mean, it's the same thing that exists today, but we were getting our education about all that in terms of regional sales of certain, you know, sneaker models that were only available in Europe, only available in, you know, France, U.K., in the same way that, like, Bambada on this particular trip, the Raptor, Bam, DST, you know, even Freddie, they're out running around looking for record stores and shopping for records and, you know, buy one. You know, they, I mean, all those things are always bought in, in duplicates. Um, you know, the same thing for sneakers. Like, we were looking for unique pairs, which we found, you know, readily. And, yeah, we were always, you know, buy one, well, buy one, buy two. And, and the funny thing is about then and now is that we didn't buy two with the presence of mind that, oh, we're going to flip, we're going to market this. No, it, wasn't a, it was simply like, wow, how great would it be to pop these out, you know, next year, like super fresh, keyword fresh, of course, of the era. And yeah, so we were super into, but also like clothing. And like you said, there was a fashion to the whole hip hop, b-boy culture that I embraced, you know, I... I mean, well, streetwear, you know, it made yeah. streetwear hip and, and, you know, fashionable. Yeah. And, you know, look at the world we are in today. We're going to mm. talk about that as well. But I'm just, you know, still to the point of you, you know, having the name Futura also yep. being very into things, the video games, the yes. technology that you got into at an early Which, age. Which, when you had paper, you let me write a little video uh, right. kind of review page. Yeah, I mean, I was fully into, um, because in the break of the 90s when, you know, I mean, we can talk about the 80s and I'm sure we will, but but the the, the new decade when 90, you know, came and, and now we've lost Andy, we've lost Jean-Michel, we've lost Keith by now, right? So there was a natural depression and a kind of, a, you know, everything kind of got internalized and, you know, the whatever movement we had created locally, you know, and sadly, you know, I feel like it ended at least uh, through Martha and Henry's uh, documentation, you know, subway art, spray can art, and now the graffiti culture has gone global. It took about a decade, you know, but but by the 90s, we were getting into computing and, oh, hey, what's a computer? And, oh, you want to make T-shirts? And so that whole thing got me onto the computer. And then gaming was coming from a First person, you know, right here in Midtown, uh, Playland kind of environment with the coin-operated machines. Now, PCs had video games. And, you know, some of the very first generation of those uh, CD-ROM games, cart games, uh, not just the home platforms like Atari and Sega Genesis and Nintendo and PlayStation, but the specifically the PC gaming was always exciting for me because uh, the machines could run the better graphic package and... So I was fully into that, and then that led me into, I guess, the mid-'90s, my website, and how I really... And and I actually felt by then, man, I'm really Futura, you know, because everyone else has kind of gone their own way, and I'm looking at this new technology, which is, you know, ultimately the future, and I want to be a part of that. You know, I want to be someone who knows about that, and, you know, very proud of my kind of transition from, you know, doing clothing and graphics and, oh... You know how to write web pages. So that was super fun for me. And even now we're looking back at that site, which is 25 years, almost uh, 24, 96. Like, I want to do that again somehow. I want to create that content, I don't know, on an app or something. Make it available for people for free, you know, just to play around in that kind of digital universe I created. 
basically, you know, I'm a self-expressionist using whatever medium, you know, is in front of me. And even now, like you said, I mean, look at Instagram. Look, look what that is. It's a, a photo sharing application with other, you know, folders, subfolders. But it's kind of what I always wanted to do and just communicate and, you know, spread my message, which is mostly self-propaganda, you know, like I'm Futura, which doesn't change from the tag I put up on the subway. So it's kind of always the same thing, really. It's just, sounds corny, That's but like true. getting up. <laughs> yeah, it's true because uh, it always was part of the culture. It wasn't because, you know, prior to that, everybody was a much more low key. You didn't really want to become that person. There was no way to become famous. Sure. Other than other waiting for the gatekeepers to sort of let you in the door. But uh, your your guys changed that scene, you know, turned it upside down. Uh, when you arrived to connect with the downtown core, mm. and suddenly we want to be successful, we want to get paid, we want to be famous. You know, sure. all these things that were not really part of the culture before that, and it sort of made it all possible. And then young artists were actually being recognized for the first time. Yeah, right? I mean, you know, Fred is very Fred Brathwaite, aka Five Freddy. He's very important. And being that kind of traffic cop to the uptown, downtown folks, you know, getting together, you know, not just as evidence with Rapture and, and, and his association with, with Debbie and Glenn, rest in peace, Glenn. He was super amazing. Glenn um, O'Brien. Yeah, Glenn O'Brien. Back then, I, I, I see us all as, like, pretty naive, just wanting to kind of be part of this Pretty, I mean, you know, back to the 80s, I mean, that was, you know, the first five years was amazing and so exciting and just, you know, it's like all these things were happening. We were opening a lot of doors and it wasn't business, you know, we, we, we weren't businessmen. I certainly wasn't. And it wasn't driven by any gain on the back end. We were just sort of all doing it. And, you know, it, it seemed not like it was more pure, but there was a kind of moment that I that I miss, actually, which was just doing it for the fun of it, for the love of it. You know, we were all super passionate. And, you know, there was this duality of it all where we were had established something on the streets and, and within the city, yet we were aware that now this thing was expanding to a larger audience. You know, which sounds funny because even in, let's say, by 85, you know, I'd been on tour with The Clash, been, been around the world a few times, had an exhibition in Europe, did all this kind of stuff, and still felt like it hadn't yet blown up or gotten as big as it could. And then I and then I was left with a very sad feeling by the end of the 80s when I thought, like, wow, you know, like, the window was open. A couple of people, you know, window, door, whatever metaphor. People got in, and the thing closed very quickly, and then it was kind of shut. And I guess that's what you were talking about earlier, you know, the initially, like, there was a kind of downtime. Totally. There was right. a downtime. I mean, fortunately for me as an individual, um, you know, I had other, you know, it, this whole arc of my life hasn't just been a pursuit of, you know, uh, myself as an artist and, you know, what can I, you know, me, 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 me. You know, a lot of my life has also been shared with being a father, being a, being a parent, you know, being a husband and all that. And I have two wonderful children, you know, which is my best work, you know, our best work collectively. And that gives me not just pride, but... I know that, you know, my story hasn't just been me, 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 me. And I did, 
as best I could balance the two. And, you know, from what I hear from people who know my guys and, you know, whatever, I, mean, I think I did a good job. You did a good job. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <Congratulations>. So, <laughs> I mean, that's about all you could possibly ask for. And, you know, for that, no matter my success, you know, whether you aesthetically like what I've done, you, you don't care for it, you know, this is fine. But, you know, what I created as a human being, I feel, and, you know, my self-evolution from the the kind of confused kid in 1969, like, hey, you know, what am I going to do with myself? And, and then this graffiti thing happened. You joined the Navy. Well, ultimately I did <laughs> because it has been, you know, not like tragedy, bum, 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 or whatever, but the fire with Mark in 1973, Mark Edmonds, a.k.a. Ali, rest in peace, Mark, a uh, beloved friend of mine uh, since childhood, that fire um, changed my life in a sense that as a result of it and the subsequent article in the New York Times and subway artists bleeds from hospital beds, stop the spraying, you know, all the reality of that moment forced me to leave the city and indirectly and, and unbeknownst to me was probably the best thing that could have happened for me in, in terms of my personal growth. And at a certain point in my life, and by the end of that first four years when I was in the service, and when I was ready to continue in the service, and it's funny that your sponsors are, are the are that uh, those guys in Vancouver and, and that particular product, cannabis. We could cannabis. Say. I <laughs> I got busted. <laughs> let's let's go there. Okay. I got busted in 1977 in the Philippines. Uh, I got set up by some girls who knew it was payday. Classic, um, you know hit on a U.S. serviceman abroad, you know, off base. Happens all the time. It's happening right now. Um, <laughs> you know, some kids are getting taken advantage of by some young ladies who know they have money. And so long story short, uh, the morning after, you know, we're, we're, good, we're, we're leaving the apartment, the house, the shack. Uh, it was in the Philippines. It was very, you know, it was low levels. And the police are at the door and the, the girl's complaining that we broke a window and we didn't want to pay for it and it was it was a classic scam and I said to the guy look no 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 that's not true now mind you we we did have some cannabis and I put it in you know I didn't have it on my person I stuck it like in one of the lady's shoes you know I just like kind of hid it somewhere and I swear to God in the morning the cops were there and I'm denied denied it's like no 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 I don't have any weed I don't have weed I have no no marijuana and some old lady came out of like a door. Like I was like, what? And she's like, it's there. He put it in the shoe. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is crazy. You got your aunt in on the setup. And as a result of that effing incident, I had to go to captain's mast on the ship. And, and I didn't get kicked out of the Navy or anything, but I got reduced. I got penalized. And in the end, um, I didn't get busted hard, but I got busted a little bit where... Man, the four years, you know, where I was in my enlistment and opportunity to advance and, you know, become the next rank up was suspended by six months. And I was like, oh, man, I, got, I can't do this. I, I got to get out. And just then, simultaneous, I got a letter from Mark Edmonds, you know, dated, uh, I guess I got out February 78. It was like Christmas 77. Hey, man, you almost made it. I can't wait to see you again. I was like, wow, how odd. I hadn't heard from Mark since the fire, you know, three and a half years more. And I just thought, okay, you know, that's it. I guess, I guess I'm going home. And so that's kind of what got me out. But then when I got out, Mark's still messing around with soul artists, and Mark's still trying to do art stuff. And next thing I knew, I'm back in New York, and 
Mark's like, man, we got to go exercise the, the fire. So we, like, what do, you, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, we got to go get the demons out of that location. I'm like, yeah, I had a car. There was no way I was going to, I didn't feel like getting on the subway. <laughs> and here I am, I'm back in the one tunnel. I'm back in, you know, under, between 137 and 145th on Broadway on the, on the, on the one line. And here we are, we're back in the one tunnel. We're at, like, literally the scene of the fire. And, you know, like, I don't know, we said a Hail Mary and did something, you know, kind of ceremonial. And we, we left out of there. And, like, he's like, okay, that's it. We've, we've done it. And then, you know, he's like, oh, we're having a meeting next week. Uh, I'm meeting Zephyr and Don D. And, you know, so then that was the inception of the whole thing. And this is so crazy. So at a certain moment in my life, I, I shouldn't be here. You know, I, I shouldn't be here. Uh, technically, David, we shouldn't meet. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I shouldn't be on thanks the, to cannabis, man. I, I shouldn't be on the rapture, but indirectly, thanks to cannabis. And you know, it's funny because I, I didn't really look at it that way. But yeah, and in the end, you know, I was so grateful. You know, as my life moved on, I was like, wow, you know, that's kind of great that I did get out <laughs> because then, thus, this wouldn't have happened. And, and you know, as as far away as I was, you know, it's like a lot, one hundred and seventy ninth, one eightieth degree. You know, completely the opposite of where I was. Man, I, I somehow got completely back. And then over the next year and a half, you know, coming into the another new decade, 1980, uh, that's when I did my, quote-unquote, you know, my opus, my big Futura break abstract car. And, you know, so amazing how it all comes to be indirectly as a result of things outside of your own power. Or, or even, not just, obviously, you had nothing to do with it. It's just external forces, but it's... It's it's wonderful because in a way, like it, it makes you feel, you know, there was a plan actually. The power of the plant. Yeah, man. yeah, yes, I've, yes. <laughs> I've had many yes. guests on the show who, you know, under the influence. Well, probably, but who believe in in this plant in such mm. a way that it has like sort of this mystical powers that cures people, that can save the world, that you know, goes way beyond. Well, look like at the, all the quote unquote high. CBD, you know, aspects or whatever medicinal things they're trying to tell you about it now. It's not like we didn't know that. Well, we didn't know that, but it's also like, I always felt like, you know, with all, with all the choices and all the vices that exist and, you know, it's like, yeah, I'll have a drink, but I'm not a heavy drinker. You know, I'll have a, I'll have a this and a that, but I'm not in a, I don't go too far in any, you know, one direction. But as far as weed, I was always very comfortable and I, I did feel like there was some medicinal, you know, even before they started considering it medicinal, I was like, well, it's kind of like meds. And personally, like, I don't like meds. I don't like, I don't even like taking aspirins, you know, like anything like a pill I have a problem with. And, you know, cocaine, any other type of things. I mean, my mother was a diabetic and I had to take care of her as a child. So I was really good with works. And <laughs> there was no way I was going to do anything involving those. So... You know, heroin was out. There was a lot of things that were just out. And then we just seemed to be, you know, whether it's my earliest memories of like, what, you know, what was it? Uh, a lid, right? Like, right, right? A lid. Buying sure. a lid. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is this? Two finger, three finger lid? You know, it's like people were using fingers and, and Ziploc bags to, and then, um, you know, uh, Cheech and Chong. I mean, you know, we're like, who really put it all? I mean, you know, I know Snoop and I, I love Snoop, of course, but. Really, Cheech and Chong and that whole idea of the openness about getting high, I, I embraced it. I was like, wow. And, and you know, I remember all my military days, uh, 1974, arriving in Honolulu. And my friend's saying, like, oh, Kona Bud, Kona Gold, some of the best weed. I was like, okay. And Thailand, 1976, Thai sticks. And actually being in on a little operation with my friends and 
buying Thai sticks for 10 U.S. cents a stick in town from some seven-year-old. And then if you had the balls to get them back on the boat, which was in town for a week, you could sell them on the boat for $10, okay? (laughs) Now, once the anchor weighed and we took off from Thailand to Philippines or Tokyo or, you know, wherever we were going from there, uh, $20. Each week, another $10. Sticks that made it back to the States, we were selling for $100 a stick. So you paid $0.10, you sold it for $100. (laughs) Like, what kind of markup? So that, and, and thank God I didn't look at that as some future business venture because it was a little crazy, the the margins. But um, pothead till I die, for sure. So in support of you know, history and everything, uh, yeah, my hand's raised when it's, when people are like, do you want to smoke some weed? And be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and your work too, I would imagine, has been influenced by that. And you're... It has. And you know, it's funny too, because I look at some of my work from 35 years ago, you know, the early 80s when it was very intense. I mean, a lot of my paintings were like, whoa, like, what are you, you know, what are you smoking? And, uh, you know, the, that's the beginning of meeting, uh, you know, individuals in the city that, that they weren't smoking, you know, Mexican weed. And someone actually was bringing weed in from Berkeley in... Oh, yeah. You know, the 90s? Is, yeah, is, is, like people knew. Yeah. Well, actually, yes, exactly, the 90s. I mean, in fact, the... The 90s cannabis scene was really I, interesting. I'm trying in, to think, was it, new, was it... The, was it 19... Oh, damn, I guess it was 19... 90, uh, like a dead show I went to in SF or Oakland. And that was really the beginning for me to really get connected, you know, with, with, with real weed and, mm. you know, the, my, my first real, you know, indica sentiment, you know, whatever the perception of, you know, finely grown, you know, what is it called? The hydroponic, whatever, you know, all of that. You strains. Know, and strains and, and people growing. And, but then I come to find out, like, people have been growing for a long time, actually. You know, there are people growing in New York, in the seventies, actually, late seventies, you know, just setting up a little little grows facility, you know, and like as evidenced by like, hey, what are all these hoses for? What are all these lights? For? You know what I mean? Basically, like after the fact, you would because we actually had access to a place that somebody said, oh, well, you know, this was a grow room. I mean, like, you mean grow grow loft, grow floor, because the whole the whole thing was <laughs> yeah, there was a whole yeah, bunch of that going. There were a lot on. of things, and you know, they're probably. I mean, obviously, there still are. Yeah, no, of course. Um, you know, I read somewhere where they someone described you as best known for his work with Uncle and sideline gigs with The Clash. So th- to me, that was like, really? Yeah, no, uh, that's... And, and it's hard to, you know, because people have you, you know, from different eras. Absolutely, like, yes. Know you from this and mm-hmm. know you from that. I mean, and you're, you know, to me, it's always about like how you are unpredictable in in where you're going to be doing in mm-hmm. the sense that you're not a the stereotype mm. of a certain kind of hip-hop street artist or whatever you'll go see a dead show for example like will, you said, yes. you know, that's not really no where you're going to find people like you uh, most i won't, of the I won't time. see my people there no <laughs> so things like that so how do you feel about yourself how would you talk about yourself in in if uh, you had to kind of nail well, it. Well, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, although Uncle's a big part of my story, of course, because in a way, Uncle does for me something very interesting in that in the 90s when I, I joined uh, Moax and, and James and Uncle, it's a time when, yeah, the 80s bit had fell off. I wasn't really painting uh, as I had obviously previously. 
And Moax, through their records and the various record covers I did for them, as well as the logo uh, for Moax, um, my characters appeared there. It was a way for a brand new audience of people, mostly Europeans. You know, it was a Brit label, uh, quote unquote, trip hop, right? So it's not hip hop, it's trip hop. It's a bit different. It's Shadow, it's Crush, it was uh, 3D for Massive. There was some, you know, uh, Uncle itself. There was a really good, like, uh, group of artists that were part of that whole scene. And I was very happy to do artwork for those covers in which they didn't really background my artwork. You know, it was done tastefully. It wasn't even like a regular, you know, project where you would do some artwork and then, you know, they slapped the logo and there's all kinds of stuff yeah, in front. Yeah, it was packaging. It was packaging. It was really well done. And yeah. then ultimately, James was quite a visionary and, you know, he wound up wanting to make a toy and that's the introduction to me getting into toys in the later 90s. And, and, and then they were the kind of uh, people who were behind the Futura book that came out in 2000, which, oh, by the way, that's 20 years ago, and loved that book. However, April of this year, a couple months from now, uh, I have my my second book, uh, my sequel, if you will, coming out on Rizzoli. So super happy about that. But just the What's time... What's that called? Uh, it's simply called Futura. I guess it's, you know, it's just Futura, but um, not 2000, Futura. And, uh, but yeah, that, that that's exciting. But, you know, I owe James and the Moex moment and all that history with those guys... For a lot, because you're right, people jumped in on me then. But the thing was, like, people who found out about me from that in the mid-'90s, well, they, that's their reference point to me moving forward. This is their intro, and now they, they, they found me, and now they, they're with I me. I see. So that's where so, it starts for them. For them. But they don't know anything about Fun Gallery or Rap Tour. Roxy. Roxy or, or, or any of my New York roots or even anything necessarily about graffiti, you know, the graffiti story here. So... You know, it, it, it's, it's amazing, and I did a very, you know, I did some nice artwork for them, and then it was a sneaker that's also become iconic. And this, so there's a lot of people who get me, like you said, for various reasons. I mean, you know, some people get me for, wow, Futura, you're an old graffiti writer from New York, and they know that pit. And somebody's like, oh, man, the Fun Gallery, oh, Keith Haring, Jean-Michel. And then there's people, wow, you did Philly Blunt shirts, and... And then it's like, oh, shit, you recorded a record? So there's all these intros, of course. And, and me. now there's like, you're friends with Virgil Abloh, and you're just, you're, yes, I you're, am. you're designing stuff for Louis Vuitton and um, Nike, not, and not, not Louis? Not necessarily Louis yet, although I did appear uh, with a Louis thing um, earlier in 19. But yeah, me and Virgil have been friends for, you know, a while now, um, before he started Off-White and before he arrived at Louis. And we just, you know, it's kind of... Uh, but you're a fashion guy now. I see your photos. I'm at, at the, the runway shows. What's, <laughs> the yeah, shows. We're, we're there, and, you know, very well seated. And we're like, wow, what are we doing here? Like, what do we got to do with this? So and when yeah. do we get out? When is yeah, it over? Absolutely. When is it over? Uh, but, you know, it's very kind of, you know, Virgil to, to bring me in on some projects. And I've done some stuff with Off-White for him. And, you know, recently we just coming from Paris, actually, in Fashion Week, where we, uh, we did the Gore-Tex project, which was amazing. And we really, we did another collaboration with uh, Comme des Garçons, which they did a beautiful job. Ray, uh, the designer, she's phenomenal. And her reinterpretation of my imagery onto the classic CDG shirt kind of models looked amazing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing stuff like that. Although 19 last year specifically was kind of crazy for me and us and all the activities and events we did. This year, I'm kind of, you know, uh, 
pulling back, and my focus uh, moving forward is really going to be getting back to the, the I don't want to say fine art, but, but just getting back to my painting and setting up a new studio. And I've been working with Takashi Murakami, who's like kind of my ally now, and I'm going to be showing with his gallery, Kai Kai Kiki, in August of this year, right at the, kind of right at the end of the Tokyo uh, Olympics. So that's a great moment. You know, this is going to be a great opportunity for me to not be collabing with every brand you ever heard of, but more or less like so painting. So you're, you're doing, really? You're, so yeah. you're just going to go back to Yeah, 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 I am. Because, and... I mean, you know, to be quite honest, like, uh, it's, it's the thing that gives me the most enjoyment, you know. Um, and technically, <laughs> you know, it sounds terrible, but... It's kind of lucrative because, you know, like... <laughs> better than fashion? Better than fashion in the well, sense You have that, your own store, too, now, don't you? Uh, well, I had... No, I no, I did you have a store. Yeah, yeah, I had a store because at some point, um, you know, Futura, the artist, um, you know, also was Futura the label and FL, Futura Laboratories. That's, that's my kind of brand name. And so we've done a lot of projects and we did have a shop in Japan. But that, that's been closed for many years, although this year... We rebooted the the concept of the brand, and we've been doing a lot of FL stuff, you know. As so, trying to keep Futura, you know, like can I can I do graphics as FL, and then oh, Futura's got a painting in this group show. So, but you can keep them both going. Keep yeah. them both going because you know at the same time, like I do want to service, you know, a community that's you know based on you know it's it's all based on consumerism, but you know give the kids something uh, obviously affordable. And, you know, allow them to participate, you know, in, in what's happening, you know, in the in the sense that everything is, you know, is, everything is a product. And one thing I wanted to mention that, you know, we didn't, we didn't know 40, 50 years ago, but the whole graffiti thing and, like, the tag and the identity and, and this and that, and, you know, you visualize everyone's tag from Stay High to, to Face, Futura, Zephyr, and, you know, everyone. And it's like, your tag is a logo. It's like, dude, you created a logo. And now, you know, so many years later, yeah, um, the Futura signature, you know, kind of became a brand. And, you know, that's through no fault of my own or, you know, it didn't have anything to do with that, really. It's just that everything else around me and how the whole culture has culture. rolled through has enabled all that, you know. And it's, it's, it's always seems to be a grab for visibility and identity and, you know, who am I, what do I stand for? You know, uh, whatever, like, what does my creative aesthetic even look like? So, yeah, it's challenging for me, but I, but I like it. What is it? Uh, graffiti is the art of self-promotion, you know, right? <laughs> I mean... If you like, sure. Yeah, so, therefore, be good at it, you know, or, or, or... And to no fault of any other individuals, you know, I'm gonna always approach a certain thing with my own thoughts, and and I'm always prepared to, I think really bring a lot to the project and it's motivation from within rather than looking at something and being like jealous or oh, I'm going to do better. You know, I, do, I don't ever want to do better than anyone else. I just want to do the best I can do, you know, as far as my creative output and don't be influenced by any other Banksy to JR to Shep to Swoon to Kenny to just, you can make a, a list of a hundred Contemporary artists right now, I want everyone to do well because if someone's doing well, we're all 
technically have an opportunity to do well. So there's a lot of young people, obviously, who are, you know, I mean, not, not even Virgil. Virgil's 40. But the 20-year-olds who are there now, you know, like that two-thirds of me ago, you know, like, and those are very much the people looking at me, whether it's a project we just did with Funko, which is a bobblehead toy company. They make figures for every imaginable character in film and television you've ever heard of. I just did a Star Wars thing with them, uh, Target exclusive. Super amazing for me, actually, because, well, it's America, you know, and now we're getting some of the recognition here, which is quite uh, like where you've been, kind of. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, Europe, Asia, you know, other parts of the world were feeling us and, and being supportive. But now it's finally come home, you know, to roost, I guess, in a, in a very positive way that people are also like not embarrassed about it anymore. It's not like people, you talk about graffiti and, you know, my school, if you will. People don't have bad things to say. People are quite proud and very happy that, in fact, you know, we did all that then, which essentially was some of the architecture that, you know, is supporting some of these things that are up and running today. I noticed that you, st you talk about your work and you still refer to it as graffiti. Mm. Is that... Consciously? Well, is, yeah, is that something that, I don't know, you still... Sorry, feel, face. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, it's just... You just still that, feel that? Or? I mean, I do because I, I think it more defines me. Like, I, I, I'm from the graffiti era, not the street art era, because that's, that's like a second coming of, of the whole story with a little more legitimacy and, you know, organization. You know, it's not kids running out in the middle of the night, which, oh, by the way, speaking of kids running out in the middle of the night... Uh, was after phase passed and you know uh, in the last six months there's been work being painted on the New York subways you've been seeing this right there's like trains I saw a couple yeah yeah no I mean so this is even like wow yeah. you know I mean I never thought I would see that I mean and I'm also like where did you guys get to them I mean you know like because I thought the city had done a really good job of pretty much like you know shutting it off totally but that's encouraging because you know it used to be and, and these are these are not Europeans coming which had happened like last year you know, and I heard there was something about, like, they got arrested, you know, Interpol, because, you know, the Europeans always wanted to come paint New York trains. I mean, that's like their, you know, that's like a wet dream for them, right? You know, you go to Paris and you're like, wow, you guys have a graffiti problem. You know, it's like yeah, you have a graffiti problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> and same for, same for Italy. I mean, yeah. you know, like parts, of, you know, not uh, Netherlands, not so much Holland. Germany. Uh, Germany, yeah, a little bit, but they not got so much. And but, but they do. And, uh, of course, I mean, Germany had a period with, you know, Lumet and, you know, the whole you know, the sort of birth of hyper-realism, spray painters and stuff. And, you know, which is, which is beautiful because over the history of the whole thing, you can look at all these sort of spots and, and you know, pick out selected individuals who were, you know, the founders of, of, of those cities' movements. But, yeah, I mean, the idea that people are painting trains in 2020 – 2019 in New York City. That's man, you know. Yeah, maybe they're getting paid to do it too. Who well, knows? Right? I mean, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, it's funny because get it sponsored by American well, Express. That that is, you know, I, I remember um, six to ten years ago, whenever Cause Brian first did the Thanksgiving um, balloons, you know, for the Thanksgiving Day parade. Right. He, he he had a, his Cause companion was part of that. But they let him wrap the shuttle train that was a kind of promotion for the Thanksgiving Day Parade. And, you know, the shuttle only runs like three stops, right, or whatever, you know. Um, 
And I just thought, like, wow, that's amazing. You know, like, now that no, this was years ago, but just to see the, you know, your artwork wrapped. And now, obviously, that's a legitimate thing with a legitimate, you know, function. You know, it's, it's historic. it could be removed, too. You know, I, I, th- I think that's where it would be now if there was any type of actual commission or possibility to paint trains. Speaking of Virgil, he had an exhibition in Chicago last year at the MCA. Uh, it's kind of like Virgil's retros- uh, retrospective. And they let him wrap one of the subway trains in Chicago. That was a kind of a rolling advert for the exhibition. And I thought that was pretty cool. So, I mean, I, I would not be against legitimately doing something. I mean, if I could paint that train today legally, that would be epic. Because then we were only talking to each other, right? But now we could talk to the public. And, you know, like you, you could you – could, Excite the public, maybe, and public would be, oh, wow, like, wow, look at that. That, that looks crazy. I mean, to have that opportunity and to, to be on exhibit, I guess, is really the, the key because what does any artist want? You know, they would like his or her work to be seen and exhibited and, you know, talked about and, you know, consumed. But on a public level where it's not, you know, a bargain, it's not like a commodity. You know, it, it can't be leveraged against, you know, some number. It's that kind of... Uh, public space that we simply took that I still feel is quite precious. And it's nice that street art is now here and around the world, people are more than happy to invite an artist to come. Well, that's the thing. You have to be invited now. You can't just go up and... Well, look at our wall on Houston, right? Right. The, 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 The famous Houston Bowery wall. You know, artists have painted that over, you know, since Keith Haring obviously first did it. And the Goldmans are, are running that whole curation of that. But just to say that, you know, every other artist that paints that wall, some local people come and just do throw-ups over it and stuff. So that will always occur because you're going to have the people who are invited and the people who are not invited. And, you know, that's why you never want to be a person that has to make a list and, you know, who to include, who not to include. But, of course, the local contemporary graph writers of today don't, share, you know, and whatever, oh, my God, you know, this, this should be looked at and, you know, protected, and, and they, don't, they don't care because it's their space, too, because it's in the public zone, you know? I mean, it, it would be wrong for them to walk into a gallery and deface someone's work, obviously, but work in the public space is, hey, you know, it's like there's no, there's no guarantees, and, and people should have relatively thick skin about how they feel about those things because... It's kind of like, what do you expect? I mean, one, this is New York. Two, uh, there's so many people who, like I said before, like are allowed in the door. And then what about the people who didn't get in? And how are you supposed to feel about them? And at a certain point, I, I know I was maybe one of those guys. And I know how I felt. And it's like, oh, that's elitist. That's, you know, some exclusive thing. And like, who are they to say? I can't? You know, so I get all the angst and the anger that comes from the community. It's not about being a purist. It's just like... Uh, their, their concerns aren't about their careers as artists. They're simply just yeah. their reputations, you know, on the street, which, you know, people carry, you know, they carry to their grave as, as a kind of badge of honor. That still exists, oh, right? Oh, it totally it still exists. Away. Yeah, no, it's, it's always going to be there. And, you know, to, to some extent, yeah, I mean, we all come from that. And I think of Lee, like... Lee Quinones. Yeah, Lee Quinones. I mean, he's probably, to me, still... Yeah, well, he's probably the greatest spray painter come out of New York, you know, uh, his technical ability and stuff. So, 
I think you know maybe we didn't represent so well on 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 the on the gender scale, you know. But I mean, I think we're quite inclusive to all types of folks who were part of that school, you know. And yeah, they they were definitely women, you know, not just Pink or Lady Hart or the Barbara and Evas of the world, but you know, today. I mean, of course, I'm, I mentioned Swoon. We just saw Swoon's show at Jeffrey Dice. But She's on, she was on my podcast. Was she? So, yeah. No, I always love her stuff because, I mean, you know, it's always been a bit of a boy's thing, you know, um, and it shouldn't be. And, you know, so it's just nice. I mean, Lady Iko, obviously, you know, she's been part of the recent stuff. For me, that scene was always very inclusive, you know, in a way. I was accepted, for example, mm. just... And I was happy to be there, and I was welcomed, and I always felt really special in that respect. Well, it seemed like the, you know, whether it was gender, sexuality, religion, like all those, you know, those things didn't really exist in this kind of little creative community that, that we all have come from. And, you know, it's like society catching up. You know, it's funny because we're trying to be very conscious now about, you know, the planet and, you know, you know, how are we organizing our, our trash and, you know, uh, compost and all this kind of stuff. And I remember 19, you know, before I, yeah, like right around the time I became Future 2000, high school levels, um, you know, ecology and all this, like, you know, the environment, we were already starting to think about it. And all these changes we've seen now in society, yeah, they're certainly new and it's taken time to, to get to legalization and implementation of stuff, but it's not like... We were never aware of these things, and so for me, the openness and the inclusion that we're seeing not just in a in a, a small movement, but in the culture at large, is awesome, you know, because, you know, even for me, I mean, I was raised, I don't want to say by ignorant people, but I don't know how my mother and father would have felt about some of the changes in society, you know, like maybe they were too conservative to to understand what was happening, but but even as a kid, I was always thinking like, no, you know, you just have to let people be themselves and, you know, respect their choices, whatever they may be, whether it's, because even my mom was always like as a kid, like, don't talk religion, don't talk politics. <laughs> she, <laughs> she was like, smart. Don't bring Good up advice. these issues with yeah. people, right? And, you know, I'm like, well, why? You know, like, <laughs> but they, trust me, I get it, mom, I, you're right. But just to say that, you know, beyond that, religion, politics, well, the next thing was always sexuality. And the fact that we are from the 80s, which was quite, you know, progressive as far as people's choices. Before AIDS. Before AIDS, absolutely before AIDS. And then look what happened with AIDS and how that was, you know, like, wow. You know, it's like some kind of, like, Ebola virus. Like, something totally terrible that came in, took a lot of people away from us, and changed everyone's sort of perception to, to some degree into a bad way where we just didn't have enough information. Today, it, despite the fact that I don't like where we are with, with telephones and you know, cell phones in our hands and all this information and stuff, but at least we do have information now. You know, we lacked a lot of all of that so many years ago when everything was a lot more, uh, you know, not transactional, but, you know, uh, physically tangible. You know, all the stuff we had to just is waiting to see a photo for three months. Like, <laughs> what? Like, what? You know, and, and that's why in the 90s when the Casio QV10, that first little digital camera I had, you know, with like 72 megabytes, like whatever the pixels were, uh, and, and like looking at what was the beginning of instant gratification beyond the Polaroid, you know, just to say that that, that kind of idea of information 
I mean, that, that was probably the quickest return on your action that you could get at the time, but prior to digital. And, you know, so just feeling like, man, the 70s, what a kind of forgettable-ish decade in a way. You know, and, you know, that was like my, my wonder years, if you will. Uh, started out, hey, Futura 2000, 30 years, and yeah, sure, you know, you're going to die like Jimmy and Bruce and, and everybody else. And then 1980, oh, wow, uh, paint a train uh, with Dondi, and there's my thing. And 1990, like I said, you know, guys are gone. Okay, what now? 2000, fuck, it made it. And my book came out, which was, that was actually prophetically epic, that the Futura 2000 book came out in 2000. And, you know, 2010, I mean, even even after the millennium, let's not forget uh, 9-11, which just just set everything back, and the, the the kind of machine had to stop for a moment. And I remember feeling super terrible even at the time because I was having a really big moment in my career, and you know, not survivor's guilt, but there was a real feeling of like, wow, you know, like what do I care about my damn you know, like? Why do I care about my career and what's going on with me when we have this sort of very serious event in the world right now? And it was a bit depressing, and, you know, that took years to return from. I mean, you know, we're 19 years removed. It sounds crazy. It was that long ago, but, you know, so at least personally, I feel like, okay, everything is kind of caught back up, you know, in the process, like, damn, I'm 15 to 20 years older, but, you know, everything is set up now for me to really comfortably find my place in, in, in all of it. I just feel like my best work is still ahead of me, actually, because now I'm, you know, we're talking about how getting this whole thing more organized. Yeah, I can focus in on what I really kind of want to do now. And I've already, you know, I've raised, you know, my children are 29 and 35. I don't really need to focus as much, you know. I mean, I'm always going to be there, obviously. But, I, yeah, I have time on my hands now that I could really um, get back to making some good work and come up with some ideas with some other creative people and... You know, I was saying the other day, like, yeah, it was 2020, but because of how my head works, I'm thinking 2030. And I'm thinking, like, what's, you know, what can I do in this next 10 years to enable, you know, it's not the continuum of it all, but, you know, I really want to do something epic, too, because it's like, you know, the clock, it's like every 12 years or something, I come up with something awesome. So it's about time. I mean, Can't wait to see yeah, what it is. I'm wait- well, BMW will be premiering next month, but that's a secret okay, crazy secrets. project. Yeah. yeah, pretend you didn't hear that. Yes, at the Freeze Art Fair in LA. Okay, uh, no, Hint, we didn't hints. hear that. Yeah, <laughs> Freeze Art Fair. All right, can't and, wait to see. And uh, at least I'll be in a state that welcomes medical uh, treatment. And like I say, I, I need meds. Recreational. Need, too. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, my friend Lenny. Thank Pichur, you, David Garth. Thank you so much for stopping by. We'll do a part two later. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash Light Culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. Mm-hmm.